Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, where once again a wonderful guest will feed us with the delights and pleasures of our economic-starved souls. And this week's guest is Dublin-born Eric Lonergan, a macro hedge fund manager, economist and writer. He is the author of Money, which is in its second edition, and you can find all his work at his website, philosophyofmoney.net. In this conversation, we talk about Eric's road to studying economics, the limitations of the education system, some philosophy, the rational expectations model, the theory of reflexivity by George Soros, and, of course, the philosophy of money. You can check out all the links, books, and resources at the show notes page, economicrockstar.com forward slash Eric Lonergan. That's L-O-N-E-R-G-A-N. This is going to be a first part episode with Eric, and we're going to have him back next week to talk more about his recent book, Money, where he didn't get a chance within the 60 minutes to talk more about his book, and he's agreed to come on for a second episode. So enjoy this podcast, and if you want to continue to support the show, check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar where you can support the show for as little as $1 a month. And if you don't have that, continue listening for free. This is a free podcast, so I'd be very happy for you to continue to listen, download, or even spread the word so other people can be introduced to the podcast and they could leave a rating and a review on iTunes. And the beauty today, if you're a student, don't expect to be fed the truth. Go and find it yourself. And the beauty of it is you know, the power at your fingertips, because you can just go onto Google and you can read Minsky or Soros. You can learn. And I, I, for me, that's, you know, that's ultimately what education is about. Education is not about having the right curriculum. If you think about it, it is the case that the educational system broadly tries to indoctrinate you in conventional wisdom. Now, this is what I find very intriguing, again, as a market participant, because by almost by definition, you can't beat a market if you've been trained conventionally, because that's what everybody else thinks. So independence of thought, in a sense, requires that you react against it. Hello, Eric. What's up, Frank? How are you getting on? Hang on, I'll put on my video. Uh, you're you're going to love my background. <laughs> there he is. Look at that. Well, what do you think of that, eh? <laughs> How's it going? Great, yeah, absolutely great. Uh, excellent. You fit the profile of an economic rock star already, with your <laughs> guitar in the background. <laughs> uh, I thought that would make you laugh. Yeah, spotted it straight away. I'm not sure. Are you? Can you talk to me again? Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know if you can actually hear me pr- correctly or or properly. I think it's just it's just coming out and the thing is fine. Let's just go ahead. Like that's grand. You're okay with that? That's grand. Typical yeah, Irishness coming out. <laughs> that's grand. It'll do. <laughs> Good stuff. Right. So, um, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me before we go on with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm intrigued to know. I guess you know your background as well, and you know the website's brilliant. The idea is great, but I'm intrigued as to you know what what got you into it and where. Yeah. What your thinking is? I, I lecture economics and finance and maths at third level in Waterford. Okay. Now I never did economics until I actually was a student in third level, and then I, I did that in I did my degree in WIT, and then I did my masters in UCC, mm-hmm. and I did my year lecturing in UCC, 
before I got a full-time contract in Waterford. So I went back to Waterford. But because you're teaching, you begin to know your subject a bit more than you would as a student, I suppose. As a student, you just yeah. learn it from, for the benefit of learning just to regurgitate it in a way. That's how I uh-huh. probably, that's how I saw it in a, you know, back then. But I got a little bit more immersed in it and I became quite disillusioned by the subject. Right. And also the fact that it was almost ring fenced. The, the discipline was ring fenced in what we had to deliver at third level. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was only when I did my master's, I got a taste of Hayek and Austrian economics. Okay. And that kind of conflicted with like of works by Keynes and some of the classical economic theory and monetary. And prior to the financial crisis, I, I suppose this was kind of heightened my, my disillusionment of the economy and how it works. And I kind of started to detest teaching economics mm-hmm. because of that. And mm-hmm. I decided there was a couple of um, changes to a degree program that I lectured on yeah. and I actually deliver, I sat that, did that degree program as a student. And I wanted to create a module that brought in other type of theories or thinking in economics. Mm-hmm. And I created this module called financial economics. Mm-hmm. And I think nearly, I, I could be wrong with this, but efficient market hypothesis seems to be brought in as a theoretical concept in literature reviews and all that, even if you're not, even if you were to contest that type of thinking. So I brought that in and eventually brought up, introduced anomalies to the markets, noise trading. And then that allowed me to develop that further by looking at Taleb's Black Swan. I looked at fractal market hypothesis by Mandelbrot and also allowed me to bring in Soros theory of reflexivity. Great. So I start teaching that around two thousand six seven. Interesting. And talking about the, you know, and then also about contagion and that type of thing. And I don't know if that was being taught anywhere else or if students were introduced to that. It was just how I wanted to study or how I wanted to read up on other people's thinking e- economics. Mm-hmm. So I bought these mm-hmm. books at that time, the Alchemy of Finance as well, so other other readings that I was able to bring in. Um, Smithers and Wright's also valuing Wall Street. Interesting. There's another good read, uh, Tobin's Q and price earnings ratios yeah. and all that. So, um, yeah, and then it just, we, we know what happened since then. And then I thought, rather than detesting the subject, why not try and talk to other people and see where they're coming at and whether I can relate to those people as well mm-hmm. or be introduced to new types of thinking that expands my understanding of the finance or the economy interesting and that kind of went away for a while i wanted to attend a conference a podcasting conference in birmingham because i heard about i started listening to podcasts and i wanted to do a little bit more on it and rather than doing not 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 only a website because i would not be able to deliver the content on topics that i was interested in that are so diverse within a discipline that I'd be better off talking to other people to give the content and share it with me and others who might want to read it. But going to this conference then on podcasting, I was thinking more so on doing a podcast on what you call that Kickstarter campaigns and okay that type of funding. 
But all I mm. got down over there was talk about economics. And I went home and I thought, like, if I'm talking about economics at a podcasting conference, I think I'm going to do a podcast on economics. Went for a walk and thought, right, I won't beat around the bush by thinking of um, a name. And I just thought of this economic rock star name and went ahead with it and just contacted uh, a lot of people. And one of the guests that I spoke to was Jack Schwager. Okay, yeah, interesting. Of Market Wizards. And he wrote a book yeah. that really... In, in my, in a nutshell, captured my whole uh, thinking of being disillusioned with the, the subject. And he wrote mm. that book, which hasn't really been recognized as I thought it should be, or he may, might have thought, he thought it was a better book than Market Wizards and the new Market Wizards. But, um, mm. yeah, it's, uh, that's where I come from, really, you know, and Interesting. You know, so I said, you know, when I came across your own website and your book on money and looking at the philosophy of money, then I just thought, look, this is perfect. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it's it's funny. There's quite a lot of overlap there in terms of my own background. Okay. And how, like, in what way, as in prior to you being a macro head fund manager? Yeah. I mean, I was very influenced. So, so I first came across Soros when I was at university. Okay. Because I did an exchange with Budapest University, which was financed by Soros. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And I think up until that point, I didn't really know anything about him. And yeah, I was always kind of torn between because my parents were academics, but not in economics. My dad was a scientist and, and my mom was uh, Italian literature. But I was very lucky because I grew up in Dublin, 70s and 80s with academics coming through the house all the time. So lots of interesting people and exposed to a lot of interesting arguments and thinking and i guess quite a politicized environment i mean my parents weren't that political but you know dublin in the 70s because of everything with northern ireland but also they had friends who were academics from south africa so i got exposed to a lot of these ideas about the anti-apartheid movement so it was a very politically and intellectually exciting environment as a kid i bet yeah I found the religious dimension very interesting as well, because, you know, again, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, Ireland was pretty homogenous. You know, it was everybody I knew was pretty much was Catholic, apart from these academics who were coming through the house from different parts of the world, you know, who would be staying with us and and friends of my parents. And but the interesting thing about that was. You know, there were a lot of interesting debates, I think. When I look back at it in the context of, you know, the debate in contemporary culture, I think there were a lot of interesting questions about what you're trying to achieve with your life, what your priorities should be, discussions about ethics and politics. And that's what got me interested in, in economics. So it was, you know, in the middle of the Cold War, I started reading Marx. So I found Marx an incredibly interesting thinker because it was he suddenly gave an integrated theory of social change. And I would still say Marx is pretty unique that I, I'm not aware of anybody else who's been able to integrate economics with social theory, ideology, political structure, social structure. And, and I came away kind of with the conclusion that Marx's analysis was extremely interesting but his prescriptions were very flawed, but that there was a lot of merit in his analysis. But a precondition of his analysis was you have to understand economics. Mm. 
because in a sense that's how he comes. He 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 sort of has he starts out I guess as a Hegelian philosopher of history. And then he thinks, well, I've got to study all these classical economists like Adam Smith and Ricardo in order to understand what's actually occurring in the world. And I found that very compelling. So I kind of had two interests, which was I was very interested in philosophy and I was very interested in economics because I thought economics was essential to understanding social change more broadly. And then, so I came over to the UK to to study economics and philosophy. Where did you study? So I studied at Oxford. I did uh, politics, philosophy, and economics, which was an amazing experience for me because, you know, I'd probably only ever been to England. I remember I, I arrived in Oxford. I my first day at university. I'd never been there before. I. I'd probably only come over to England three or four times in my life. And I was suddenly exposed to, you know, an amazing world of learning. I mean, it was incredible. You know, I couldn't believe there were some of the world's leading philosophers. I mean, Oxford was probably preeminent in analytical philosophy. And I say it was such a hotbed of intellectual discussion and debate as well that opened up your eyes coming from as you said, a homogenous society back in Ireland. Well, this is what was fascinating about it, because I think in many ways, Ireland was incredibly rich culturally and intellectually. But there wasn't much diversity of people. Yeah. So it was a very interesting mixture. Whereas in a sense, I was very struck by the diversity of people at Oxford to some extent. I was very struck by a lot of things. I was very struck by the class structure in the UK. That was a big shock to the system. Because we couldn't really identify to that. You know, I couldn't understand if people would ask you what school you went to. You know, as you know, that would be a very odd question to ask somebody in Ireland. It wouldn't really be meaningful. (laughs) And what was nice, actually, about being Irish at that point in time is nobody could categorize you. So in a sense, you were freer than I was had I been British, where there was a tendency, certainly at that point in time, to categorize people in terms of their social background But it was, I found it just uh, amazing intellectual freedom. I also, funnily enough, I'd taken a year out from school before going to university. So I I hadn't really, at some point in secondary school, I lost interest in in kind of the whole academic exam orientation. And I, and I I was only interested in studying certain things myself. So I took a year out because I didn't really know what I wanted to study. And then it, in that year out, it became clear to me what I wanted to study. So I really took advantage of it. So I went to loads of different seminars in Oxford. I remember people like Derek Parfit. It was, it was amazing to me, an, an incredible genius of a philosopher. And you could just go to a seminar, you know. So I think because I'd taken a year out and to some extent I'd, I'd – that in that year out, I I got clear in my own mind what I was interested in. And then I was given a great degree of freedom at Oxford to go and, and, and pursue ideas. Um, and I just took advantage of it. You must have felt somewhat at home given the diversity in your own home as well. Given, you know, as you mentioned there, your, is it your mother is it Italian, you, you said? In inter, in literature? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you were talking, um, and you had a lot of discussions on apartheid and that's right. It was a very, you know, 
Ireland in the 70s and 80s, you know, you've got the Cold War, which was being discussed. So there were people arguing for communism, for capitalism. Uh, what is the nature of freedom? But you also had religion. And I guess my mother being Italian, it was very intriguing because the Italians were Catholics. And of course, a lot of the, the priests in Ireland were trained in Rome. So they had this kind of respect for Italian culture. But the Italians' attitudes towards Catholicism was very, very different. You know, the, the Italians were, I think, have a much more liberal interpretation, certainly at that point in time, of Catholic beliefs than was prevalent in Ireland. Mm. So I was, so there were lots of debates at home about Catholic doctrine. And then you had Northern Ireland. Yeah. And then you had a global environment about apartheid in Latin America. So it was a very politicized and culturally demanding environment to grow up in. You mentioned Marx earlier on, and I mentioned Hayek. And in your book, Money, you brought these car uh, these economists up as well and their perceptions of the economy around them. And Marx, as you said, uh, based his understanding on what was happening in Manchester in the industrial industrialization or the industrial era, whereas Hayek was based his based his thoughts coming from Vienna. Yeah. Where do you think, looking back on your readings of philosophy and economics and politics, would Ireland or the UK at that time would where would they fall in that spectrum, or was it more in the middle, or would it be more leaning towards Marxism and the industrialization of those, or would it be more the liberal? I don't know if you want to call it liberal uh, economy in form of Vienna. Interesting question. I don't, I guess one thing, and I don't know why this happened to me, but I think I was always quite eclectic. Um, so one thing I think I realized early on was that you didn't get the truth in the conventional wisdom. So I think what I found interesting about reading Marx was, was a couple of things. One is I really believed in reading source material. So it gave me a distrust of secondhand thought. That's, that's a clever way of approaching that, yeah. Because the Marx that I was reading was much more interesting than the Marx that was represented to you, either by people who were communists or by people who were anti-communists. They both stereotyped the thought. And what I found was interesting was the original was much more nuanced and subtle and interesting. And I guess at some level, somewhere, this seed was planted that if you actually wanted to understand things or get closer to the truth, you had to go to the periphery. You had to find people who were willing to say things that were different to what most people were talking about. So there was a kind of contrarianism. And... I don't know if I got that partly because one side of my family were migrants, actually, so that I was just exposed to a different perspective on things. So that was that was a big influence for me that stayed with me. So, I, again, I, 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 what I found very interesting at Oxford was they were very dismissive of continental philosophy. Um, so the philosophers were also quite doctrinaire. And that made me very interested in continental philosophy. What would they be indoctrinated in? Would it be like sort of Hume and John Locke? Yeah, they were very dismissive. And this is a very interesting phenomena 
within academia. And I think, again, this is what ultimately where I found markets very appealing because markets destroy dogma, right? You're not going to survive if you have that level of bias. Whereas the analytical philosophers were absolutely exclusive. You know, they thought all these continental philosophers didn't do it in the right way. They objected to their style. They weren't clear enough. The analytical philosophers wanted to do linguistic analysis. So they very much, there was almost a language divide where the continental philosophers wanted to complicate things. You know, if you read a Foucault or a Derrida, they're the opposite of simplifiers. They, they make things more complicated. Whereas the analytical philosophers were absolutely about pinning things down to crystal clear definitions. And so I've always been of the view that they all had insights. So I became very strongly of the belief that all great thinkers in economics and the social science have insights. So you should never dismiss any of them. And I would remain of that view. So and this, I mean, says there's insights in Marx, there's insights in Hayek, there's insights in Friedman. You mentioned Eugene Farmer. There's insights in Eugene Farmer. Um, and, and, and it comes back to the point you were making. My conclusion was, and this is, goes back to, you know, Hayek and Marx reflecting their own backgrounds or the environments they were exposed to, is that. There's a kind of a time and a place for most of those theories. Yeah. So I don't really believe in the general theory. I think there are, they're all useful, but you've got to be cognizant of what their assumptions are and what circumstances to apply their ideas to. And that's the thing. A lot of these theories that are written are for that time and whether we can use those theories to reflect what's happening in time today or sometime in the future. We use them as a basis or as a foundation of human thinking or philosophy. And to build up on that is based on your interpretation of what's happening at that point. For example, Marxism uh, was developed uh, due to, I don't know, was that due to communism or is that the cause of communism? Uh, the theory, uh, uh, general theory by Keynes looked at demand side policies, whereas Friedman looked at uh, supply side or money supply. And then they didn't work, you know, they were yeah. rejected and then we brought Keynes back again, I think was, and then socialism, socialist policies in the last decade. So there's an ever changing interpretation of what's right for the economy and what theories to apply to those economies. And it's opening up those debates continually. Uh, so we almost have to embrace, well, we don't have to, but it might be ideal to embrace all these worldly thinking or these worldly views on uh, human thinking and how they inter how we interact if you want to bring it into the markets because they're allowing us to understand what these philosophers or great thinkers are writing about and if we embrace them and also are aware of other philosophers or other thinking in economics perhaps then we may be able to establish a more coherent view or belief or interpretation of the market whether some people will disagree saying, you know, you should just focus in on one side. Others like pluralists would like to accept multiple views or multiple understand, understandings or interpretations to the market so they can embrace the best bits or the worst bits and uh, build up on a, a, a theory, a new theory. 
I think that's right. Now, and, uh, but I would stress, you know, uh, people will criticize eclecticism as a kind of anything goes. And I don't believe in anything goes. I think what you can do, though, is define the conditions under which given theories or views of how markets and economies work apply. So I think one can be very rigorous about it. You know, taking on board what you say, which is absolutely the case, and I think this remains the case with economics, is that ultimately people react to to what they actually see. You know, so so your perception of capitalism and markets is going to be hugely influenced by what you directly experience. I mean, if you experience industrialized Manchester with child labor and absolutely brutal capitalism with appalling treatment of labor and workers' rights, absolutely somebody objectively looking at that as a human being is going to deem capitalism to be quite a brutal, repressive system. If you go to Silicon Valley and you see, you know, highly educated individuals engaged in hugely creative activities Mm. operating in an extremely affluent uh, beautiful circumstances, your perception is this is going to be an extraordinary phenomenon. Mm. Um, and so what one needs to do is, you know, and, and is, is try and identify, you know, which of those worlds is realistic, and which of those worlds is one actually dealing with, and then try and get some insights from, from the relevant theory. So, so to take an example, if I think of something like rational expectations, I would say rational expectations was a very insightful analysis of what was happening in the 1970s. So I would I would say there's there's two things you have to look at. You have to look at the technology that's prevailing. So and that is a kind of Marxian analysis. Mm -hmm. And then you have to look at the institutional structure. And and subject to the technology and the institutional structure, you need to think about what economic theory is most relevant. Yeah. Now, the, I would say, the, and this, again, I think is, is hugely neglected, is this interaction of the two. Because I, I still think in economics there's a division. You either do institutional economics or you do theoretical economics. Economists neglect the interdependence of the two frameworks. So when I think about the 1970s, I would say if you have unionized labor and monopolistic firms setting prices, having a rational expectations model is pretty insightful because we think of rational expectations, individuals holding in their minds an economic model and having beliefs that are consistent with an economic model. That doesn't make a lot of sense. If I I stop somebody on the street outside and ask them, you know, what do they think inflation is going to be in 12 months time? Most people don't have a clue. Mm. However, if I ask a trade union representative who's engaged in centralized bargaining in the 1970s, what they think 12 month inflation is going to be, they have an extremely good idea. And the idea that you can con them in order to get real wages down is wholly naive. So in a sense, the rational expectations model made sense within that institutional regime. The irony is once that institutional regime is dismantled and you have deregulated labor and capital markets, the rational expectations model no longer applies. Mm. Um, And I think then you have very different forces driving the macro economy. But I think it still applies. What's interesting about that is I would say that 1970s model could be applied to somewhere like Argentina or Turkey or South Africa, where you've still got the same institutional structure. 
with uncompetitive firms or protected oligopolies and monopolists operating within the corporate sector, almost in collusion with the labor market and unionized insiders. And that 1970s model does exist in various economies. And so a rational expectations model of the inflation dynamic is is similarly applicable. That's what brings about all this confusion. So we can't apply one type of economic thinking to a particular time or even a particular place. And I'm, I'm sure that's maybe where I became quite confused at the beginning because I was only exposed to what I felt that afterwards was a limited amount of economics, even though when I was studying it, it was it was a lot, you know, you, you didn't want that anymore. It's like studying for the English exams and all of a sudden you have all these Irish poets and English poets, like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Dickin- Dickinson and and then you have Peter uh, Patrick Cavan and so on. And the more, you know, you don't want to be studying all of these and they all have different types of thinking on life and uh, reflecting on the self and so on. With economics, it's very difficult to do that. Because what's happening in Argentina is not happening in Ireland, even though Absolutely. with a business cycle, you can generalize it like that. But it's all to do with the regime or the institution as well. Yeah. So we have to, I don't know, not that we have to, but perhaps be open to how an economy operates and then how to deal with an economy when, if you want to say the shit hits the fan. Uh-huh. I don't mind saying that because on your book, you were talking about your experience on the train. So there's a bit of a bit of <laughs> language in there. So uh, uh-huh. so I don't mind using That's that right. if you're okay with it. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Absolutely. Yeah, I I think that's right. It is demanding. But I also think that's the fascinating thing about economics. That's why it's so creative. And and, and that's what attracted me to markets. And I got this from Soros, really. So, so what I found very interesting about Soros was the idea of testing a hypothesis. And he doesn't try to test a hypothesis by econometric analysis. He tries to test a hypothesis in markets. Um, and, and I think it does give you a very – it forces a very brutal intellectual rigor on you. It forces you to be very humble and not dogmatic because professionally, if I'm repeatedly wrong, I won't survive. You know, so the, the onus on intellectual honesty, knowing what, very clearly what the limits to your knowledge about how the economy is working is essential to survival in markets – and I have certainly found, I mean, this is a quote from Samuelson, and I, I, I love reading Samuelson. I have all of, I have his collected works on my desk here because Samuelson to me was an eclectic. But Samuel says, I'm an eclectic because Mother Nature is eclectic. And that's been my experience is that, you know, so my advice to students is, is read everything. Don't dismiss any of them. Don't approach it in the sense that there's one economics. You know, so again, I was, when I went to Oxford, my tutors were completely dismissive of Hayek. They were completely dismissive of real business cycle theory. They tended to view economics as, as moving forward and dismissing certain views rather. And, and I was just drawn to them and found lots of insights in them. And even something like, you know, real business cycle theory, which I think is legitimately criticized, I think there are situations where you get productivity shocks. And I think productivity shocks can periodically be relevant to an economic cycle. Mm. They're just particular sets of circumstances. So the error 
is any claim to universality. The error is to view the economy through a single theoretical model or lens at any point in time. When I first read George Soros' work, it really got a hold of me. It was like something that I was searching for all along. It finally, to me, was the best way. And he even admitted himself that he's still learning how the market operates, but it's how he entered the hedge fund industry based on this premise of how the market works on the theories of the theory of reflexivity and looking at fallibility and the negative and positive feedback loops and how people will misinterpret the market and take the facts and kind of misinterpret those facts uh, as a different type of reality. And that brings about a positive feedback loop, which expands the, the markets in terms of the overvaluation of prices and it's only when there's kind of a shock when someone realizes that this does not add up to reality that you end up with a negative feedback loop and it brings it back down to if you want to call it an equilibrium and which he i don't think he believes exists but i felt when i read that it was like an eye-opener to me and i finally began began to understand not understand how the market works but it was the best explainer for me because it brings in the human element into it and our cognitive thinking. I think you're right. I mean, again, it's actually a remarkable achievement, Soros, because I would say it's, again, a uniquely general theory, which is integrating insights from, you know, behavioral psychology. But Soros does it in a way that I think is better than anything else I've seen in behavioral economics, because it's a holistic theory, which has which yeah, absolutely makes sense. So the idea that we're always biased is a very, is, is I think a compelling observation. We are always biased. That doesn't mean irrational. It may be, we may be by, or we may, it may be entirely reasonable to be biased, but in a sense, the, the sample that's available to us is always giving us bias. And there's absolutely a feedback from prices. Interestingly, I think it's 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 a general version of of Bernanke and Gertler's theory, the financial accelerator. I would say they've got a which is a kind of reflexive system. So the idea that if asset prices rise, collateral values go up, credit is eased, which causes asset prices to rise. So they create a financial accelerator. That That's a very Soros. I would say Soros is just a more general version of that. But I think Soros's weakness, intriguingly, is a linguistic one, which is he couldn't really, well, two things. I don't think he references enough of other economists. So he was almost too impatient. He didn't want to read all of the economics and then try and synthesize it to fit his model. So he couldn't draw on references that academic economists could understand. And the other thing is, is that, you know, he doesn't have the the, the, the formal mathematical modeling. But he did. He did mention that actually in his works that he would like for this to be the foundation of something yeah. in the future that people could build up, up on. And he did, I think he did say that if someone could build a mathematical model to try and explain his thoughts and whether they would work. So definitely, you're right there to say that it was. I don't want to quote you know. You didn't say it was a flaw, but you said it was a drawback or something on on the work. Yeah, I, I, well, it was only in this sense that you know maybe. He needed to to be in, to have his original insights, and I think they were, they are original insights and and very important economic insights. Maybe he had to be free from all of that, mm. 
Uh, and again, this is one of the things I find very intriguing in the whole debate about the curriculum is, again, the contrarian in me is very relaxed about incompetent curricula because I think the onus is on individuals to be critical. And the beauty today, if you're a student, don't expect to be fed the truth. Go and find it yourself. And the beauty of it is, you know, the power at your fingertips, because you can just go onto Google and you can read Minsky or Soros. You can learn. And for me, that's, you know, that's ultimately what education is about. Education is not about having the right curriculum. If you think about it, it is the case that the educational system broadly tries to indoctrinate you in conventional wisdom. This is what I find very intriguing, again, as a market participant, because by almost by definition, you can't beat a market Mm. if you've been trained conventionally, because that's what everybody else thinks. So independence of thought, in a sense, requires that you react against it. There was um, just as you're saying there, I need to check a something on Facebook. Sorry, no, I'm not being ignorant, but it ties in with what you're saying there. It's a post that Oliver Jeffers put out there based on Frederick Douglass's anniversary, I think it was. And I just shared it earlier on and it just sums up nicely what you had said there, I think. In a way it relates to it. It is it is easier to build strong children than repair broken men. Now I I and you can hurt and interpret that or reinterpret that to reflect what we've seen here in terms of as a student you can build up your knowledge of economics and be open to all these types of thinking rather than later on where you've been indoctrinated into one type of economic or philosophical thinking. It's very hard to change that. And you can be liberated by what's available at your fingertips, as you said, to, I know he was talking about slavery here. And, but in a way we are enslaved by the educational system, which now over the last 15, 20 years, we are more liberated to reach out and study the likes of Marx, the likes of Adam Smith, Hayek, um, Soros, uh, anybody, you know, and yeah. make that judgment call where you fit in. As as you mentioned yourself, you you had that, took that time out prior to university and you found your calling and went into philosophy, philosophy, politics and economics. Well, that's right. And see, this is the thing that intrigues me is I actually think it's a very, very creative and fertile phase for economics. And I love the fact that students are so motivated that they're reacting against what they're being taught. I think that's fantastic. Mm. They're seeking alternative curricula. What more could you want as an educator? They're so motivated, even if they're motivated in part by the fact that they don't like what they're being taught. It's not good enough. That's that's fantastic. That, 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 that's, they're going to push themselves. You know, they are motivated to learn. And that's, again, as I said earlier on, my, one of my reasons for doing this podcast, and it's a totally unbiased podcast. So someone who's a Marxist came on and someone who's an Austrian economist came on as well. And I had somebody talk about Hayek, which happened to be on Karl Marx's birthday. Huh. And that interview was released. So someone commented saying, oh, yeah, typical, you know, the Hayek's talk on Karl Marx's birthday. So I got somebody else on to talk about Karl Marx's work. And I think it happened to coincide with uh, Hayek's birthday as well when that podcast was released. (laughs) It was something like that anyway. So this, this, this podcast is completely unbiased. And some people might not like some of the episodes. uh, And there are other people who are open to 
listening yeah. to all episodes. Well, I can't, you know, my, I, and this may be a, a deeper observation about group identities. I, I see, I, I think one, a, a profound human bias is the desire to be part of a group. And it has very strong evolutionary role. But it isn't intellectual objectivity. You know, truth isn't determined by what groups think. It is very interesting, though, that people want to label themselves in schools. And I find this so interesting in economics, this propensity to kind of it's the I, I describe it on the on the philosophy of money website as a sort of football team approach to economics is that we want to have a team. And that's a very curious that one should be very, very suspicious of that, because that is absolutely anti science or anti objectivity. Mm. Scientists are, are guilty of it, too. It's a declaration of bias. Yeah. And, and there are schools around, you know, economic schools to have their own thoughts. Maybe some people might criticize the Chicago school for dirt hiking, but something like that is at the time was quite groundbreaking in their interpretation and how they relate economics to daily life. Eric, can I talk to you about your book, actually? Yeah. Because I bought it there yesterday on Kindle, and I couldn't believe I got a right bargain, to be honest. I don't know if I should <laughs> tell you that. <laughs> My pleasure. The title is Money. It's in its second edition. I didn't yeah. get to read it all, uh, and I'm looking forward to um, reading more of it later on. And to be honest, I couldn't it's on my phone I'm reading and, and I found it yeah. difficult to put my phone down oh, well, it just funny. reads very very well and immediately I got a sense of philosophy from it and hence our discussion I, I suppose at the beginning of this podcast for the last 40 minutes or so was somewhat philosophical as well and you also mentioned that you had that educational background so I now I understand where you're coming from when reading this book and you don't just talk about money you question like a true philosopher, what is money? Like, yeah. you know, someone could start off, what is the meaning of life or who am <laughs> I and this type of thing. And it was the first time I was introduced to something like that, to question what is money because we take it for granted. Yeah. And we have this list in economics, money is a medium of exchange, store yeah. of value, and you have this list. But you go a little bit different on it. That's true. And I'd love to ask you, what is money? <laughs> well, I mean, just by way of a little bit of background, when I, I was actually approached to, to write this book, I'd given a talk. Uh, a very good friend of mine invited me to give a talk at the School of Life in London on, on the work-life balance. And I gave this talk on you know, kind of what motivated me in my work. And, and then an editor came up to me at the end of the, the talk and said, listen, would you be interested in, in writing a book on the subject of money? for a series they were doing, a philosophy series they were doing at the time. And it was, it would have been 2009 at that point. So the, the kind of criteria for me was, I said, look, I'm very happy to give it a go, but I don't want to write a book for the sake of writing a book. But I've thought about this subject for the best part of 20 years. So I've given it an awful lot of thought. Mm -hmm. So I literally wanted to write what I believed and I, I didn't do it in order to write a book, in a sense. I wanted to make sure I thought I had something to say and, 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 and something that was somehow relevant. And I was very struck at the time, this is in the middle of the financial crisis, and I would say there are multiple levels of very, very deep misunderstanding 
very striking sitting in the United Kingdom where probably the, the most one of the most significant industries in the UK is the financial industry. And yet I think if you ask most people a simple question like, what is the purpose of a stock market? What's actually the function of a stock market? Most people don't know. I would say most people in government don't know. Most people in the Treasury don't know. Um, and in fact, it goes back to your point about the role of finance. If you open, open an economic textbook, it's not clear that you'll find it. Or if you do find it, you'll often get a misleading answer. So people will say things like, oh, it's the efficient allocation of capital. That's not the role of the stock market to efficiently allocate capital. The role of the stock market is to diversify, um, to diversify risk. So again, I found it fascinating that things like, or something like the insurance industry, people know nothing about the insurance industry know nothing about when the insurance industry grew, why did it grow, why do some countries have bigger insurance industries than others, what is the role of finance. And related to that, the point about money is the financial crisis revealed absolutely that most people know nothing about the banking system. And economists are very, very weak on the subject of money. And I found, I think there are some very, very big gaps in economics that are profoundly important. A very good example of that would be something like whether money issued by a state is a liability of the state. I mean, you'd have thought that's a kind of obvious things for economists to have thought about and to know. And I would say there was a complete lack of rigor and depth of understanding. And, it, and, and a technical issue became profoundly important. So so important as to say it makes no sense to be engaging in austerity at the same time as you're doing QE. Now, I think I can explain that yeah. to my 16-year-old in a way that she will absolutely understand it. But if I start talking to people about QE and austerity, they won't have a clue what I'm talking about. So I was motivated by a number of factors. I was observing, I think, a huge gap in public knowledge about the functioning of the financial system. I think there was a, there is a huge gap within economics. There's actually a profound lack of rigor in certain basic philosophical concepts to do with money and finance. And I was also then observing profound consequences. I mean, so, so I, I, I would genuinely argue that these gaps in knowledge and understanding partly contributed, if not, if not essentially contributed to the euro crisis. Yeah. So these gaps in knowledge impoverished countries and had profound social consequences. So that was really, you know, the motivation behind writing the book. And I, I really wanted to make it relevant to people. I, I felt economics was underselling how important money is, as you describe it, if you think of a medium exchange, a unit of account, a store of value, that really doesn't mean anything to you. But if you think it's it's as central to the social structure as the legal system, it's as profound uh, a social contract, and but at the same time, it is as mysterious as you know what is the origin of God. Uh, uh, it's as poorly understood. That that is that's quite an exciting pursuit. When you're looking for the meaning of money, or what is money, from a philosophical as well as an economist's point of view, because in your book you talk about how economists and accountants misinterpret or have a different interpretation of money. And how banks see money different to how we as depositors view money. So a deposit is a liability to the bank, whereas we see it as an, an asset. When you're looking for these answers, 
did you have to go back as early as possible, hmm. like the beginning of life, to find out your answer? You know, because there's all forms of money. I know you mentioned cigarettes as a as you know that money is not cigarettes, but in situations it may may perhaps be. Well, I started, and this was how I chose to write the book. Because of my philosophical training, I, I applied effectively the, the method of philosophy to a lot of areas of economics. So one of the good things about analytical philosophy that I learned was clarity of definition. So, for example, a lot of people, you meet an economist who will say, oh, money is a liability. And you say, OK, define money for me and then define liability. And I can just check for logical consistency. And what you'll discover very quickly is they can't define either or they have a very poor definition of either. And so then what they start doing is they start using the same word to to apply to different phenomena. And so you're starting to make basic logical errors based on linguistic inaccuracy and poor definition. The methodology that I used was to go to first principles. In other words, ask yourself to engage in introspection work out, is a deposit money? What is the nature of a deposit? Is, is a 20-pound note a liability? Try, I think you can, you can get very, very far by analyzing that question yourself and thinking about it logically. So, so I think there is information. And if I say to a taxi driver, does the government owe you anything for a 20-pound note? He'll look at you blankly. He will go, that doesn't even make sense. They'll just think you're a bit odd. That's actually profoundly insightful because they're right. <laughs> the government doesn't owe you anything. Now, you're, that's already telling you that a 20 pound note isn't a liability, right? Because people know when somebody owes them something. And effectively, the meaning of a liability means somebody owes you something. Either they definitely own it or they owe it to you contingently, which is a contingent liability. So, so right there. You can, you've made an awful lot of progress. Now, then what I did is, what, in a sense, what I did is I wrote down my thesis and then I read the literature. I worked backwards. So there's a big part of me that doesn't like to start by reading everything and try and synthesize it because that actually traps you into conventional thought. If you want to have independence of thought, formulate your beliefs first, then go and test them. And I ended up concluding that the, the conventional view of money being a liability of the state is an accident of accounting convention because nobody has started with that observation from a kind of theoretical definition of what money is. All that's happened is for a host of reasons, and I think there's, there's a couple of confusions. One is because it used to be a liability. So in a gold standard, money is a liability because if it, I can go with my 20 pounds and I can get 20 pounds of silver for sake of argument or of gold. So in a metal standard, you are owed something for the money. And then the other confusion, which is the point about a cigarette not being money, is transferable debts are very, a very convenient form of money. So now, again, people make this analytical confusion all the time. They think that if I use a bill, so let's say you, know, you Frank Conway, start issuing debts and people start trading them, we can then go and use those to pay for things. Now, then it looks as if money is a debt. But as soon as you start to use that thing as money, it's changed. It's, it's a, it kind of met, it's, a, it's a metamorphosis. 
So once a cigarette is used at money, it's no longer just a cigarette. And this leads you to the observation that money is, can be a thing, but it can also be a property. So we can transform anything into money if we start to use it as money. Now, again, I think, you know, you find me an economics book that spells that out. Very, you do not learn when you study economics that money is a property. And that it's a property. I, I, I'm even unhappy with the kind of no intrinsic value because I'm not sure that's actually true. What it really means is that it doesn't have value in alternate use. So a 20 pound note isn't valuable as a piece of paper. Um, but there are lots of things in a sense that don't have any physical value. I mean, you know, language doesn't have physical value. Software doesn't have physical value. Ideas don't have physical value. And so, so money is, is, I found absolutely fascinating because there seems to me to be huge gaps in economic understanding of the nature of money. But that, that during a financial crisis, the nature of money becomes profoundly important. So because it is a, uh, something that has value because it's socially acceptable, uh, it can be created at will. By creating more of it, you, you can rescue a society. So when, when, you, so when you get a panic, a financial panic, creating money effectively saves the system at zero cost and without any inflationary consequences. In fact, it may even stabilize the inflationary environment because you protect the economy. And this can be done effortlessly. And I think a failure to recognize that was in part the cause of the euro crisis. If we were still on the gold standard, we wouldn't be able to have all that printing of money, would we? Say, for example, with QE, because we'd have to match it up with more metals, like more precious metals. Yeah. Or would we devalue the price of those metals if we were to print more money? Uh, I I think it was Minsky that suggested that we should have stayed with the gold standard because it would allow it wouldn't allow governments centrally planned uh, governments or not centrally planned governments sorry um, governments to or even central banks to print out money and create this scenario of possible hyperinflation and also predict what could happen if we had been removed from that gold standard. Yeah, I mean. If you there's there's a kind of number thing you can unpick there. Um, I mean, I think the gold standard is is interesting intellectually because it reveals a human bias when it comes to money, which is people are extremely uncomfortable with the idea that it has no physical value. So there's, it's very interesting that people money is clearly extremely important to us at a at a private level. Because it's, it's necessary for us meeting our basic needs in life. And yet it's, it's only value is, a, is social acceptance. That comes across a lot in your book earlier on as well. Yeah. Well, I find this a very interesting phenomenon. And also it, it, it leads to me into a kind of morality of markets. So I found that the most interesting theories of markets, or at least the least conventional theories come from anthropology which views the market as a form of conflict resolution. And to me, that is the real or, or one of the most important things to think about in markets. So again, markets are presented on an economics course 
as about the efficient allocation of capital. They're presented, if you think of American political ideology as being a source of freedom. I think what's probably more important than both of those, and I'm not sure either of those are coherent perspectives, but it is clear to me that the market as an institution can be a very positive form of conflict resolution. And so one of the things I think that's very interesting in terms of the ethical consequences of markets is that, and this is a, is, is a semi-Hayekian point, is that the benefits of trade come from people being different. And again, so again, this is a very intriguing point. It's evident also in Marx that Marx talks about markets breaking down barriers um, and, and being anti-tribal because actually if we're all the same and if we produce the same things and have the same resources, there's no point in engaging in trade. Trade in ideas is interesting if people have different ideas and trade in physical goods and services is interesting because people have different skill sets, specializations and resources. So I find this a very positive potential force that can come from markets. Is it, is, and this goes back to the essential point about money being a social interdependent phenomenon. It increases human interdependence. So you can go from that kind of analysis of the institutional structure all the way up to contemporary politics. If you think of China and America, there's a huge financial and economic incentive for those powers to cooperate because they have a high degree of financial and, and, and trade integration. Now, that is no guarantor of peace, but it certainly creates an incentive for peace. It's, it's one thing I didn't see money as this form of conflict resolution, as you put it in your, in your book and also uh, there recently, because without money, as, correct me if I'm wrong, as you said in your book, without money, you would have nations trying to immorally take over another nation for increased their subsistence levels and maybe over, I don't know if it's based on their own scarcity or perhaps because they want more and they want to enslave another nation, to say, for example, imperialism and they want their countries to grow or Hitler's idea of trying to expand uh, their land in order to capture more resources for the German people. And I, I know money did exist uh, in those times anyway, but going back to maybe tribal conflicts whereby you might have different tribes that would conflict one, one another by introducing money even though you may not like another tribe this uh, form of money allowed people to or, or tribes or clans to exchange money for goods and or perhaps services and that way it actually reduced this conflict and I never saw money as, as that way and I suppose with the, I don't know if the European Union was based on this. I suppose it was more of a political union at the beginning, or with the intentions of being a political union to avoid another world war, uh, and by bringing about a eurozone where there's a common currency, it actually reduced the the probability of something like that happening again in the future. I, I think that's absolutely right. There's a great quote from the anthropologist Marcel Mauss who talks about. In order to trade, we must first lay down our spears. And I think there's there's an awful lot of wisdom in that. So the way I think about it is in terms of moral incentives, is that when you increase our interdependence, we have an incentive to act morally. And that, that and I find it very interesting because if you think of something like Brexit to make it contemporary, you can see this tension. 
because I, I would say what's happening globally in politics is a move towards nationalism, which is largely a political strategy because you know elections are, are, are won by, by changing the votes of a minority, most elections. Um, so you get very small percentages of the electorate change their opinion. And so as an electoral strategy, nationalism is very powerful. But, of course, nationalism is, is totally inconsistent with trade. And you see this if you look at the debate about Brexit, because how can you simultaneously be nationalistic and pro-free trade? And so you see them, they get, they get confused and tangled up in knots because they're simultaneously trying to claim that or, or to appeal to a form of nationalism at the same time as simultaneously saying, well, we want to pursue free trade. Um, but any free trade agreement at some level is a loss of sovereignty because by definition you're saying we are deferring to some other authority to settle a disagreement. We're signing away things. Um, but that's an, in, uh, and that is absolutely the case is that, uh, when you get, when you become more into, there is a loss of national power. It, it's, it's interdependence. Eric, I'd love to talk a lot more. I'm happy to continue on unless you want to do a second episode? Sure, I don't mind. Whatever you want. Meet up another time. Yeah, you know, I, I would love to be able to talk more about your book, and uh, you know, it's up to you now. You know, if you want to wrap up soon okay. enough, that's fine. Usually, the episodes are about an hour long. I, I've a lot more to ask, and if you're happy to come back on again, I'd love to have you on and do a kind of a back-to-back episode. You know, if you think it'd be useful or interesting, happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. Because what I'd love to do is um, talk about the hedge fund industry as well, and we expand sure. and uh, go a bit deeper on the the topic on money, sure. and then we could talk about maybe a few of the other random questions. Whatever's easiest for you, Frank, I'm very happy to do that. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I did actually, I posted a blog I can send you on the market. I'm going to, it's not on my website, I posted it on the M&G blog. Okay. I am going to, I'm, go, I'm planning to post it on, on the philosophy of money as well which there might be some stuff that's interesting there as well about volatility and things. Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the economic rockstar website if you enjoyed this podcast why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com 
where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.